My name is Alan Smithson, your host for the XR for Business podcast. Today's guest is Christophe Mallet, co-founder of Somewhere Else. Somewhere Else Solutions is a London-based innovation agency specialized in immersive technologies. He's now exploring how to leverage immersive technology and artificial intelligence to deliver soft skills training that actually delivers behavioral change. The end goal is to make the workplace a better place for everyone. Throughout his careers, he has strived to bring together brilliant minds, makers, and businesses to deliver impactful projects and solutions. He's worked with a variety of global clients, including Adidas, Samsung, Ernst & Young, Save the Children, Sony, Ikea, KPMG, Nokia, and the list goes on. To learn more about Somewhere Else Solutions, you can visit them at somewhereelse.co. Welcome to the show, Christoph. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here as well. You've been working in immersive technologies. Maybe kind of give listeners an understanding of what you've done at Somewhere Else, some of the projects you've done, and then we'll, we'll dig into something really exciting after that. So I came from the world of uh, both strategic consulting and digital and social and the world of storytelling kind of on my, on my own time. And back in 2015, um, I met with a guy called Julien in a pub and um, he showed me a, um, an experience, the night cafe, in which you enter a painting by Vincent van Gogh. I don't know if you've tried that one. I have. So to, to paint a picture for people, they took Vincent van Gogh's painting and then made it fully spatial so you could walk around in the painting in VR. It was the night cafe and you could walk around and go and sit at the piano. And it was beautiful, really, really beautiful. It was beautiful. It was very early and, and my jaw dropped because I, I saw a new way to tell stories. I was a bit bored of my previous job, so, so I decided to quit. And I started a, a studio with that guy, Julian, another guy, Rami. And kind of alongside the market, the way the market has evolved since 2015 is the wow factor was big at the beginning. There were a lot of things being done around um, entertainment and marketing. So we worked a lot with TV channels. Uh, we did an escape room in Paris. We did stuff for the climbing experience for Adidas, uh, some like uh, Champions League Cup raising experience for, for, for the UFR. And that's how we kind of like honed our skills in you know, what it means to tell a story in virtual reality versus you know, other mediums such as cinema. And about two years ago, Accenture, BCG, McKinsey started publishing their reports about how immersive technologies should impact service design, visualization, uh, training, and so on. And so suddenly, immersive tech started appearing in conversation at boardroom level, which is what you need for any technology to be adopted. And so we started receiving a lot of inquiries in the enterprise area and specifically in training. And so for the past, I would say, 18 months to two years, we've been specializing on that and more specifically on the, on the behavioral side of things and taking VR support what it really is, which is, you know, VR has been very focused on environments. You know, virtual reality means I recreate an environment virtually. But your reality is also about uh, the people who are part of that reality. And I think so far we've failed a little bit on creating virtually real humans. And the day we can interact with virtual humans in believable virtual environments, then you can start having simulations, social simulations, where you can build, you know, experience on demand and soft skills. So to put things in perspective, what you're saying is that everybody focused on making the environments look real or making the interactions, maybe it's training, but you would be training on a, on a machine or manufacturing or a car or a truck or something like this. But what you're saying is you've created training simulators 
to train on how to deal with people. Yes, the world of work is changing fast. You know, automation, all of that, meaning that uh, HR department have a massive challenge now, which is to upskill, reskill massive portions of their workforces who are already digital workforces. And to do that, uh, the investment that they do is shifting away from knowledge, because the knowledge is, you know, fits in your phone, from knowledge into behavior. As a professional currency, your mindset is becoming more important than your skill set. But delivering soft skills training is super hard. You cannot learn empathy on the PowerPoint, right? But delivering like face-to-face role-play type training at scale is, uh, is difficult. And so the question is, can we use virtual reality as a solution to, to have the best of both worlds? The experiential impact of face-to-face training, but on top of that, the, the, the scalability of uh, digital learning formats. I think now would be a, a great time to talk about uh, a new program that you guys have developed called Body Swaps. What this program allows you to do is, as an HR professional, let's say you have to deal with 100 employees. Every employee is different. Every, every person is different. And you're going to deal with different challenges that, may or, that are really impossible to train for. Uh, maybe it's an irate employee. Maybe it's somebody who's lethargic. You're going to have all these different scenarios, which it's very, very difficult to train somebody for these different scenarios in using current technologies. But what you're saying is VR can then put you in a room with a lethargic employee. You can work through that. And then the body swap idea is that now you can sit in the position of that person that you just spoke to and analyze your responses back to them and see what it feels like to be on the other side. And that is Mm -hmm. incredible. So maybe speak to that and what you're doing with body swaps. Sure. Are you aware of a guy called Mel Slater? Sorry, who is it? Uh, Mel Slater. Does that ring a bell? I know. It's kind of the European counterpart of Jeremy Balinson from Stanford when it comes to uh, having done behavioral research in VR. So the body swaps format is not something that we invented by any means. Uh, we looked at the research. And Matt Slater uh, from the University of Barcelona is the first one who had this idea of what if I could swap body? What if I could be in someone else's shoes getting a new perspective on how I behave? And the first experience that he created was about feeling empathy towards yourself which is one of the main causes for, for, for depression, is your inability to feel empathy towards yourself. And so in his original experience, uh, you were a woman, there was always a mirror to take ownership of your virtual body, and your task was to be nice, to console uh, a young kid that was crying in front of you. So you just had to talk to that kid. Now, because we knew you were going to try to be nice, whatever you said, the kid would, would progressively stop crying. That's the first step. The second step of the experience, you would swap bodies. So you'd find yourself in the kid's shoes, listen back to what you said to that kid. And basically, the whole idea is you would reflect on the fact that, wow, I showed empathy towards that kid. I said things that are really nice. And actually, I should have empathy for myself. So you're using self-reflection and self-awareness as a way to subconsciously impact behavior. We saw that in the research, which is, obviously absolutely fascinating and we scratch our head wondering can we apply that for the world of work would it make sense to listen back to yourself when you are having you know a review is a underperforming employee when you're pitching uh, when you're dealing with someone who's vulnerable or shut off uh, when trying to understand unconscious biases in the workplace um, and so on so that's the scientific backbone to the format would it help if i gave an example of, of how we've used it Absolutely. 
So the very first one we built was actually not in corporate uh, L&D. It was in a higher education. And we were contacted by a company called Sage. It's a U.S. company, actually. Uh, and Sage, uh, they are a publishing company, so not the, not the accounting uh, software. Uh, the publishing company, uh, you know, they've been basically selling libraries of books to universities for decades. They've started to sell videos as well. And they're wondering whether VR is the next format for, for higher education. And so they contacted us and asked us to find a value proposition that, would, that where VR would make sense. And what we found is that if you're studying to become a nurse in psychiatry, uh, like in many types of studies, you're going to spend a year in the classroom learning all kinds of you know, theoretical knowledge. And then after a year or so, you're going to start being placed in hospitals. Problem is in hospitals, there's one supervisor for 20 or 30 students. The supervisor is already busy with patients. It might not be the same guy week in, week out. And so as a result, you have absolutely terrified and inexperienced 20-somethings running around the corridors of psychiatric hospitals, having conversations with schizophrenics and suicidal patients and, and so on. Uh, those are not the kind of conversations that you want to mess up. There's too much at stake. And so the idea was there's this gap between the world of the classroom and the real world. And we want you to practice to get that real world experience, but in a safe way, without the danger of, of, of the real world. And so that's why we built uh, the body swaps. It never replaces being in front of real patients because for starters, AI is not, not there to have those conversations. But you can, you know, hours after hours, see what it feels like to be talked at by yourself, to be reassured by yourself. And through self-reflection, you build the confidence so that when you arrive in the real world, you are 80% or 90% of what you should know. And obviously you can translate that for you know, leadership, sales, and so on and so forth. It's incredible. For people listening, what is the next step for them to get engaged with you? Are you making this so that it's, uh, it's scalable, so you have a certain number of scenarios? Is this custom for each company? If a business says, I, I really want to start using VR for our HR to train these soft skills. What does the process look like from your end? Well, the first thing I would say, Alan, is what I see a little bit too much in the immersive learning industry is VR studios thinking that they are also learning designers and also subject matter experts. It's like, because you can make the VR doesn't mean you can actually make it effective. Exactly. It's exactly that. And so you, you really need kind of a dialogue at the same table as early as possible uh, you want uh, subject matter experts. They only will know the area. You want learning designer. His job is not to know the R, is not to know the subject. His job is like, does that teach? And that's it. And obviously, you need a client champion. It's very rare that your entire client stakeholders are going to buy into VR. You're always going to have someone who's going to be your champion in their company. And you need that person to be at the table with you because you need to educate that person. If you don't have that dialogue... You either create beautiful VR that doesn't teach or you create an experience that teaches very well but actually doesn't engage or even worse, you create something that does both, engages and teaches, but you don't have any buy-in because you didn't manage your, your champion, so to speak. So to answer your question, at the moment, we don't have a standardized library of scenarios. We would build scenarios uh, together uh, with our clients and there are different ways to do that. Either, either we work in a standard way, which is let's take what we already have, the features we already have, the kind of graphics quality that we already have, 
and simply write a scenario that fits into that learning format. That's kind of the standard approach, so low, kind of low involvement from the perspective of the client. The second one is completely bespoke. Let's just have a chat, talk about what you want. You might want to bring in some new features, new analytics, the possibility to ask questions, to flag. There's a lot of things that we can do, and I think the format should evolve together with what the client we work with wants. And the last level is partnership. And you might have an IP. You might, for example, be a company that's been doing face-to-face leadership training with actors for, for 20 years, and you're looking at, at scaling up your business model through VR, in which case it's more of a partnership. Let's sit together and see if we can create a, a product, you bringing to the table your learning design and your subject matter expertise and us bringing to the table the VR expertise. Love it. It's really great. I I'm, So let's talk more about details because it's one thing to, to be in VR and play a video game and, and it's another thing to be in VR for work. How are you seeing kind of the companies address things like buying the gear because we work with a lot of companies and one thing they, they come to us and they'll say, oh, you know, our CEO was at a tech conference and he said, we need to get into VR. And so we're calling you because we need to get in VR. <laughs> there's no strategy. There's no forethought. What do you say to companies that are just coming and saying, we need to do something in VR? How do you end up getting to the right decision makers or, or how does somebody from a business standpoint find you? I mean, how they find us is it's your variety of, of, um, of marketing strategy. But to your point, the, the most difficult aspect of implementing VR right now is moving from the POC to the deployment. I think what Striver did with, with Walmart and the scale of it, the kind of like, you know, 17,000 headsets in 5,000 locations, the scale is what makes it really impressive. And um, our approach for that is, and indeed you're right, some clients don't necessarily see further than let's do VR because I have a bit of a budget and, and it's fun. And so the answer we always have for that is having an agile man- mindset to this. So we would always start with consultancy, which is let's take a short amount of time, a short amount of money as well, small amount of money so you don't take too much risk, and let's make sure to discuss what it is you want and why you want it. You know, you're going to interview end users, you're going to bring a subject matter expert, you're going to do a UX design workshop, you're going to do a discovery slash education workshop with some of their team if need be. And at the end of that process, we know that you want what you want for the right reasons. We know how you're going to measure the success of your POC or pilot, and you know how much it costs. And what we tell our clients is if you want to stop there because you don't have the money or because it's not the right time or you don't have the buy-in, you're better off stopping there. If you, if you want to work with someone else, you can work with someone else. Otherwise, we move forward. And then once you have created your prototype or your pilots, it's very important to set aside a significant part of your budget uh, for testing it out. The, the discussion about cost is an easy one to have. Uh, you know when you do cost-benefit analysis of implementing something. You know, the discussion about, oh, you saving on logistical costs or downtime costs is an easy one to have. The difficult one is um, what Bertrand Wolf from Le Pavillon in Paris called the return on impossible. It shouldn't be only about costs. It should be about, you know, in the workplace, like poor soft skills create depression, anxiety, discrimination. Um, and now we have a possibility by changing perspective to deliver behavioral change. So we have to measure what it means for your bottom line to go from someone who is depressed or a manager who just is incapable of managing conflicts to an able manager. 
it's very very hard to measure but if you can measure that then you will get buying for uh, buy-in for implementation so there is a responsibility that often lands on the client side to bring in the resources to, to to make sure that that it's measured i think a lot of early days virtual and augmented reality was like you said at the very beginning let's just make something really cool and shiny. And we fell into that trap as well. We built VR photo booths and we built VR applications for for fun. And Mm. I think we've kind of finally, uh, at least we have come out of this illusion of awesome, VR is great, we're going to use it for everything to it is great and it can be used for a lot of things, but let's take a pragmatic approach and measure uh, what it is we want to uh, accomplish and really measure that. And that's where the, the consulting comes in. And we do a lot of consulting uh, marketing, e-com, education, training. So I feel you when you say you can't just dive into this thing. You have to really understand it. What are some of the metrics, I guess, that a business could measure? Because you mentioned what is it like to have employees that are depressed? And what are some of the metrics that you guys speak to when you're presenting this to clients? What are some of the statistics that you're using? One way to answer would be to ask how are they measuring it right now, the way they're doing it today. And when it comes to coaching or face-to-face training, a lot of time it's what is being called a happy sheet. Um, do you know what I mean, a happy sheet? No idea, but it, it sounds fun. <laughs> well, it's, it is fun in a way. It's because, like, let's say you're going to do one-day leadership training. Okay, Your HR department or your boss is going to spend two grand for you to go on a one-day course. Uh, at the end of the day, you're going to receive a happy sheet, which is literally you saying how happy you were with the day. Ah. And that is about it. And in many, many cases, you have we've met many massive organizations where the tracking of training is minimal and the number one KPI for whether training was successful is not whether it was successful, is whether it was pleasant. Ah, yeah, and pleasant versus success is not the same. It's not the same, exactly. In our case, what we want to measure is behavioral change which is de facto quite difficult to map against hard financial KPIs. But to give you an idea, we had a, a Alice Jane, um, she's a student at UCL, and she took the experience that I mentioned uh, before, the psychiatric nurse one, and she ran it, full sample of, uh, of students at UCL here in London, so uh, the MedTech Society students. She had a qualitative interview right after the experience, and a survey, and two weeks after, she had another survey. So the timeline is a little bit short. Of course, it should be like six weeks after. But the evolution of the self-reported engagement, self-reported memory of that experience is already a, a good indicator of the performance. And for me, there were two numbers that came out of this research that were quite interesting. The first one is 90% of the participants thought that seeing themselves from a new perspective would help them reflect on their performance, which is already a plus. And the second one is 93% of participants said that they only tried the experience once, right? So about seven minutes. Uh, 93% said that they want to, they would like to try the experience again to improve in their performance. So they were able to reflect. And so that's the thing is that we are quite good judges of our own defaults if we can get the perspective of someone else. For them to be able to say, okay, this is how I sound and it is not okay for whatever reason, and I want to improve that levels of engagement that are unheard of. And there's a, a couple of anecdotes from the, from the kind of post-interviews. Uh, there's this one guy, for example, who said, well, I had to, I had to take care of my flatmate who was, who was really depressed. And the second I started talking, I heard myself falling into the trap of talking way too slowly and way too low and having too many filler words. Oh, wow. So he had built that kind of 
filter of of self-awareness that he applied into the real world. And that's anecdotal evidence. If we could prove that at scale, I think we would have something very powerful. So let me ask you a question then. How far away do you think and, and how many more trials do you think will be required to kind of prove that? Are you maybe partnering with the university to find a way to get some real hard evidence around this? Because what I'm seeing with some other things like Striver, for example, you mentioned, but the reason they were able to do that is because Walmart did a pilot and the results were unquestionable. They saw between 20 to 50% better retention rates. They saw uh, shorter training times. So in the case of Walmart, it actually made a lot of sense on paper. And so how do you now go from, you've got this thing, you're running a couple trials, what is the next step to really nail down, get, go from anecdotal evidence to real empirical evidence? And the short answer for that is do exactly what Striver did. I think you know, Striver being headed by Jeremy uh, Bailinson from, from Stanford, they have that mindset of you know, having an hypothesis that something might work and, and, and testing it out again and again and again to make sure that the hypothesis holds. And I think it, it's, the, it's the only way forward. So for us, uh, we have contacted actually universities to try and scale up the kind of research that, that, that we already did, which is on the let's say, academic validation of the learning format. On the other side of things, you want a uh, you want a business validation uh, as well. So the clients that we we're talking with at the moment, we're making sure that uh, that that cycle of, of testing and validation is built right into the uh, right into the pilot, and that we go beyond the the happy sheet. That's really incredible. I, I, you guys are onto something amazing, and I think it's only a matter of time before you have those proof points. I think if you can partner with a university to get those proof points validated, then it's only a matter of time before the next Walmart comes along and rolls out your uh, body swaps solution at scale. So, and then a lot of companies, a lot, a lot of companies are experimenting with VR and, and AR now. So a lot of headsets are floating around. From what I've heard, companies will buy 10,000 headsets and they're just sitting around. So the more use cases like this that we can generate, I think it's just going to really snowball. And I think virtual and augmented reality from an industry standpoint is really going to be driven from enterprise. I'm with you. I'm quite curious to to also get your opinion. Obviously, the, the market has completely shifted from a consumer-driven market to a to an enterprise one. And within enterprise, you have vice industries, of course, and verticals. What what do you see as being the kind of use case that is now fully validated and accepted by an industry as a whole. Sure. Uh, I think the, the easiest one right now is is upskilling, uh, being able to, to use not necessarily full mixed reality or virtual reality, but being able to wear a heads-up display, almost like a Google Glass kind of thing, where you can pull up information as needed on-site, hands-free. Uh, I think another big, huge one is a remote assistance or see-what-I-see assistance, where you're working on something you don't know the answer, so you can either pull up the answer in your view, or you can call somebody uh, back at the head office, maybe an expert, uh, maybe it's somebody who's retired, who's just coming in. And one person with a lot of experience can now serve hundreds of people in the field that maybe don't have as much experience. And being able to see what they're seeing real time and annotate on their vision, I think is one of the biggest use cases. Uh, companies like uh, Striver, who are using 360 video as training, I think that is the lowest hanging fruit and it's one of the biggest impacts from investment standpoint because it doesn't require 100,000 or a million dollars in investment. You're talking maybe 10 to 20,000 for your first modules and as an enterprise, 
if you're seeing 25 to 50% decreases in training times and 25 to 50% increases in retention rates, this is no longer should we do this? This is how do we do this as fast as possible across our enterprise? And that's what I'm seeing. And I think medical is the biggest use case of this. They're using virtual reality for medical training uh, almost everywhere now. Every, every single lab's got a VR headset. Being able to look at MRI's data in full three dimensions is just saving lives right now. And when you talk about return on investment, saving lives is probably the biggest return on investment we can do in this technology. I think we're going to see it in schools eventually. It's going to take some time. We're working with some companies right now that are building K-12 curriculums. But it really comes in handy when you want to teach stuff that it's not math, learning you know times tables in your calculus, but learning how uh, complex equations work. One thing that I did was uh, I went in VR and I tried this thing where uh, it, it took me on the difference between the carbon of a diamond versus the carbon of, of a graphite, right? It's the same molecule, but the way it's stacked differently makes diamonds super hard and makes graphite uh, because it's in sheets and it, they slide off. That's why your pencil, as you're writing, leaves a, a stroke of black carbon. Until I had seen it in that way in VR and full 3D spatial computing, I really didn't get the concept, no matter how much I read about it. I think things like that, where you can train people in unsafe environments, being able to give people the sense of what it's like to be trained in a mine is really key because you'll hire somebody for a mining company, train them for six weeks, eight weeks, and then you send them underground to the mine and realize that they have panic attacks and they can't work underground. So being able to immerse them in a virtual space from the very beginning before you even hire them will give you a good understanding of their mindset going into that. And I thought that was a really amazing use case. One that is not compared to the savings. It does not cost a lot of money. You know, you're talking maybe $10,000 to, to uh, for the setup and how much does it cost to train a new employee to have them not be useful to you in the field. It's well, you know, the good old analogy of the of the flight simulator. If you are still training uh, pilots on real planes, it would be very, very dangerous. We wouldn't have very many planes. We wouldn't have very many pilots. Yeah, but that's why the value proposition of, of VR, of immersive learning in general, is not is not a new one. It's just taking the flight simulator, except the cost of a flight simulator is upwards of a million pounds. Now we're talking Oculus Quest going to be four hundred dollars. So. When you're dividing something by 2,000, you're kind of expanding the value proposition to a lot more jobs. And the way we, we present it to clients who come in and ask about what it is that we can do in training is to have three value propositions that I think you, we all mentioned today. The first one is skills-based. So with anything that way, you're going to use your hands. You know, an excavator fitting a door on a car, and it's basically building psychomotor skills, building spatial memory of a particular task. And the economics there is why do it in reality with all the danger and the cost of reality when we, when we can do it virtually. That's the first one. The second one, which you mentioned about, uh, about the graphite and the, and the diamonds, is uh, knowledge-based. So knowledge-based is we learn about the world around us in three dimensions. When I spatialize content, when I make it interactive, I am improving the understanding of that content and I'm improving the retention or, or memorability. And as you said, it doesn't apply to everything. It would make no sense to learn how to read in VR because reading is two-dimensional by essence. But if you're learning about how a heart is working, for example, and I write to you a chapter about how a heart is working, I would not let you operate me tomorrow because that's not how you work about a three-dimensional beating 
uh, object. And the last proposition is behavior-based. And that's the one we talked at the beginning about the body swaps. And it is what happens when I put you in the body of, let's say I'm a white man. You know, what happens when I put you in the body of a woman or someone much older or much longer or a different race or someone with a handicap? And what happens when in that situation I ask you to interact with other humans? And that's the whole return on impossible here. We're not talking so much about costs. We're talking about giving people a perspective that is simply never had before. You cannot even role play that. This is something that is absolutely native to, uh, to virtual reality. And I think at the moment, in the behavior model, we're only scratching the, the, the surface. And the same way that when TV started, uh, they were doing radio shows on TV, and when radio started, they were doing theater plays on the radio. I think at the moment, we're still there when it comes to, 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 uh, to behavioral. I agree. And we need to think what happens to your behavior when you change scale, when you have superpowers, when you die, when you resuscitate people. It doesn't have to stick to reality. To There's a lot of experiences at Stanford that you know, driving, uh, flying over a city as a helicopter pilot or as Superman uh, in VR is going to change uh, your altruistic behavior in real life when it comes to helping out someone. I think we still have to map the subconscious impact of going beyond reality in virtual reality to give you those almost like superpowers in real life. Have you tried the experience called Tree? No, no, no. So there's an experience that they that they made. I'll have to I'll put it in the show notes. But it's basically you're in the the Amazon forest, and when you first start the experience, before you even put the headset on, they give you a seed, okay. uh, a, a tree seed, and they put it in your hand. You hold on to the the tree seed. And then put on the headset and you are a seed growing mm -hmm. and you grow out the ground and then you grow up and your arms are actually moving the limbs of the tree. Your leaves start to sprout and you grow up to this, be this big, huge tree and you're swaying in the wind. It's really beautiful. And then all of a sudden in the distance, you see smoke. Okay. And basically you are the tree that's about to be cut down in the rainforest. Oh, wow. Okay. They splash and burn all the trees around you, and then they cut you down. It was mind-blowing, and it really made me feel this kind of connection to the trees in the forest. It wasn't somebody telling me, hey, we got to stop cutting down trees because of deforestation. It was this intrinsic feeling of being part of the forest, and it was really beautiful. And I think this is something that we've only just, like you said, scratched the very, very tip of the iceberg on. I'm really looking forward to it. One last question for you, uh, Christophe. What problem in the world do you want to see solved using XR technologies? I want people to be able to become the best versions of themselves fast and without harming anyone else in the process. If I could put uh, your president in a, in a body swap experience, I would be quite curious what would happen. Well... I would have to say that he's not my president. I live in Canada. Yeah, fair enough. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I want to see a video of him trying the experience that you just uh, just uh, did describe as well. Yep. It, well, I, I don't know if you'll ever even get that. But regardless, I think we are fully aligned. My, my personal mission is to inspire and educate future leaders to think in a socially, economically, and environmentally sustainable way. And I think virtual reality, augmented reality, all of these technologies, if used like the way you're using them to create skills-based training, knowledge-based training, and behavioral-based training. And, and I love this. You, you said 
ROI is the return on impossible. And I think that is a really great uh, way to end this podcast. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to join me today. And I want to thank everyone for listening. This has been the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. This podcast was another amazing example of how XR technologies are revolutionizing business across every industry. To learn more about Somewhere Else Solutions and Body Swaps, you can visit somewhereelse.co. And thank you, Christoph. It's been an absolute pleasure. Christoph, it has been an absolute pleasure. It's been a pleasure, Alan. Great talking to you. Speak soon. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startup studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute, to learn, and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper-accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know, reports coming out daily, but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're in the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one, -on -one, one-hour call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions, we're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is gonna drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission to hyper-accelerate XR for business and education.